The reading this evening is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18, and can be found on page 966 of your church Bible. That's Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 18, on page 966, The Escape to Egypt. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rob. We have been following the Christmas story through the account that Matthew gives us. And this evening we come to a very dark part of the story. Sometimes it's even called the shadow side of the Christian of the Christmas story. And yet for me it contrasts, of course, the light that Jesus brings. And I think probably like maybe a lot of you, I've been reflecting these last few days and weeks on the mystery of the incarnation. And I've been doing it through um, a little bit through poetry, because sometimes poetry and art can help us engage with mystery, perhaps uh, in, a, in a way that um, other things can't. Because it is an incredible truth, isn't it, that we believe, we say it in the creed, don't we? I believe in Jesus Christ, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. And that God, that God, creator, almighty God, becomes this tiny, created, as it were, creature, this tiny baby. And it is a mystery, isn't it? How can the one who made all things become so weak and helpless, dependent on another? How can the one who commands the winds and the waves need his needs to be met by another? How can the one who we call the word only communicate through a cry? And of course, tonight we're thinking about the one who is the source of all life itself, the life giver, becoming the one who has to flee for his life, the one for whom uh, their life is in danger. Jesus had to flee from death, potential death. So it is one of these greatest mysteries, but of course it is the greatest news, isn't it, of our faith that this almighty God 
becomes one of us, the unknowable, almost unnameable, utterly holy God chooses to be known by us. So he chooses to become a person in a particular time, in a particular place. He chooses to be Jesus of Nazareth. Because our faith can never be something vague, something about a God who is everywhere but distant, unreachable, a holy God, but one that never makes any claims on us or demands on us, one that never really comes close enough for a personal encounter. No, our God, of course, is the God who enters into our world, the God who comes right close to meet us where we're at. Some theologians have called this the scandal of the particular. God becoming a man, born into a particular tribe, language, and nation. Fully God, yet fully man. And uh, one of the poets I've been reading uh, writes about how when he was an undergraduate, someone mocked his Christian faith by saying, you know, this God you believe in, this God of the Old Testament, he's just a tribal God. He just revealed himself to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. How can it be? How can the God of the universe meet with Abraham, have a meal with him? How can God be seen to be helping just one man, Isaac, find his wife by the well? Or how can the almighty God wrestle with Jacob or meet Moses in a burning bush? But the poet I was reading goes on to reflect on that mocking statement about God being a tribal God. And he says, it's just as well he dared to be, dared to come out of the invulnerable realm of ideas and into the bloody theater of history, that he might change and redeem it from within. The particular scandal is that Jesus himself was a child refugee, taken by his parents as they had to flee from Herod's soldiers. So as we now watch this Tear Fun video, I just invite all of us to be reminded of that amazing truth that God himself identifies with the refugee, with those who are fleeing for their lives. And of course, we as his people are called to do the same. Let's see the video. We've been fleeing, guns blazing, machetes hacking. Over 70 were killed, brutally killed. These are the survivors. They've walked over 200 miles to get here. It seems like I've spent my life actually believing in Jesus and his words and, and trying to follow Jesus where the need is greatest. I was born in this country, I grew up in this country, my parents were missionaries and when I was 10 we had a very severe rebellion in Congo and that left such a mark on my life. I saw real violence, I saw many Congolese who were very brutally killed. Do you know upwards of 6 million Congolese have died as a result of the violence since 1999? Upwards of 6 million. My heart's breaking. 
But then I meet a woman called Yvette, who was one of these displaced persons, as we call them. But these are just people fleeing their homes to try and find some safety. The militia came at 9 a.m. Seven of my family were trapped at home and were killed. My two big sisters, my brother, my three grandparents, and my father. I was hiding at the hospital for seven days. After that, we fled to a nearby city where my husband was also killed. I still feel sick about it. After the end of the civil war and ethnic conflict, then Yvette decided to return to Nyakunde. Yvette and kids were eating just once a day. And sometimes if she could not manage to get some work, she could not get money to buy food. I used to do work in the field and was paid in food, clothes, and a tiny amount of money. I knew how to make clothes, but I didn't have a sewing machine. I met Tiofan's partner, Action Altred, who offered me a small loan to start two businesses. The loan I received was for $35. I took $15 as a down payment for a sewing machine. With the remaining $20, I started a donut business. The donuts are very tasty. I sell them on the side of the road. With my tailoring business, women usually come with their own material. I make clothes and they pay me. I make women's tops, dresses, and skirts. I like working with my hands, making clothes. We train people in tailoring, carpentry, and uh, weaving, we also help people, we give them uh, tree plants for reforestation to improve the environment. And we also give micro loans to people so that people who had nothing could at least start some income generating activities. I paid off my loan in three months. When I got the loan from Action on Trade, I was very happy. Now I earn enough to send my children back to school. My faith has grown. God is working through Teofon supporters. And Action on Trade was able to help me. Those people have helped me a lot. And walking around feeling these strong emotions of why are the Congolese still suffering? What, what is happening here? And I meet somebody like Yvette. She challenged me to say, if you continue to help me and the other women in my village, we will make this. We will do this together. <laughs> my Lord told me, give a little cup of water in my name. That's what keeps me going. There are days when I'm so frustrated. Honestly, I, I'm so, I just question, why am I doing this? And then my Lord reminds me and says, just keep giving that little cup of water because I, I gave all. David, please give. 
to these folks as the Lord has given you and as the Lord continues to give. That's what keeps me going. I will never be able to give like the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want to try. I do want to try. Tear Fund, of course, is one of our mission partners are one that we support and there'll be lots of ways in the coming year in fact there's a big event happening at the beginning of February where we'll be able to raise some more uh, support for Tear Fund. If you've been to a nativity play uh, recently uh, either in school or in church uh, you will know that uh, the part of Matthew's gospel that we've read tonight seldom makes it into nativity place. Uh, occasionally you'll see King Herod, but you'll only see him as a kind of a pantomime baddie. Uh, you won't see, on the whole, uh, Joseph and Mary fleeing into Egypt. Uh, you won't see uh, the slaughter of the innocent children. Uh, how could you in one sense? Because uh, for any nativity play, it breaks all the rules. Uh, we want the nativity play to end happily uh, with the shepherds and the angels and the wise men gently and lovingly around the crib, and it's the end uh, to an exciting but essentially a happy story. And in a sense, that's how it appears in Luke's gospel, but it's not how it appears in Matthew's gospel, uh, where it's very different, where suddenly this massive great shadow, as uh, Sue was saying, or clouds, comes over the story as danger and peril uh, impose on what has so far been a story of wonder and thanksgiving. And we see in this passage at least three things that we uh, sometimes forget about the early life of Jesus. And it's really important uh, that we remember them. Uh, the first one is that Joseph and Mary and Jesus were for several years asylum seekers in Egypt. They'd have been in a queue of people like the one that we saw in the Tear Fund video. Now, Egypt was the obvious choice in some respects. It was nearby uh, to Israel, and there were many Jews who lived there as well. Interestingly, this time that Jesus spent in Egypt was used against him uh, after his death and resurrection. And people who opposed uh, Jesus, uh, especially as the early church got going, uh, said, well, of course, he learnt to be a sorcerer while he was living in Egypt. And he learnt black magic uh, from those horrible Egyptians. And so this was actually used uh, against him. Not true, of course. But think about all that vulnerability and all that fear and all the uncertainty that we are used to in the eyes of asylum seekers. Whether it's people on boats, uh, whether it's people coming in lorries, whether it's people queuing at borders, all of that was something that was experienced by Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And there are deep echoes of history. Uh, there are parallels to what happens in the book of Exodus. Uh, Herod, like Pharaoh, was a terrible king who wanted to kill the firstborn. But he failed. His plans were thwarted. But this time... Uh, rather than Moses and his people eventually fleeing out of Egypt, the Son of God himself flees to Egypt for safety. The second thing we see is that Joseph and Mary and Jesus, uh, Joseph, Mary and Jesus only just escaped 
Herod's death squads. Herod wanted to kill Jesus, and so he sent his soldiers. It was probably some time afterwards, but just to make sure, the order was that the soldiers were to kill every single boy under the age of two. Such was Herod's paranoia. Such was his disgust that anybody might be named king as opposed to him. Now, Herod had form here. In his lifetime, as recorded elsewhere, he killed the following. 300 officers of his court. He killed his wife, Mariamne. He killed his mother-in-law, Alexandra. He killed his eldest son, Antipater. He killed two other sons, Alexandra and Aristobulus. That's just the ones we know about. So it was absolutely no problem for him to send some soldiers uh, to Bethlehem uh, to kill young children. And it's completely in keeping for this highly threatened, paranoid king uh, to send death squads uh, to try and catch up with Jesus. And we see thirdly that Jesus was brought up in Nazareth and not in Bethlehem. Uh, The dream that Joseph had uh, guides them eventually back to Nazareth uh, because Archelaus was a chip off the old block like his old man, Herod, and he was as bad as his father, whereas Antipas was apparently a bit more stable. Now, Nazareth was a small uh, but an important town on a major crossroads, so it's very cosmopolitan. And Jesus grew up there. He was the eldest son of the family. He presumably took a bigger part in family life after Joseph's death. And he would have worked for many years in that village as the carpenter. So what do we learn from these little-known facts from Matthew 2? As Sue was saying earlier, we learn that this precarious and risk-filled strategy of the incarnation, of the creator becoming the created, a tiny newborn, we see that that precarious and risk-filled strategy continues wasn't just a one-off at Jesus' birth. All the risk, all the vulnerability of birth in Bethlehem wasn't a one-off, but it was a pattern. And it was a pattern that continued and continued and continued all the way through to the cross. It was never a cushy life. It was never an easy life for Jesus. It was always one of peril and danger. And even though others begged him to walk away from the cross. He walked towards it resolutely. The second thing we see is that this was all a part of God's plan. It was foreseen by the prophets. The prophets had foreseen uh, that uh, Jesus would be called out of Egypt at the right time. The prophets had foreseen the terrible suffering that Herod would bring on the people uh, of Bethlehem. They're weeping, uh, they're crying, uh, they're anguish. It had all been foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and then God had intervened personally to guide Joseph and Mary and Jesus away. I've often wondered what I would say as a pastor to the parents of the other children who were killed in Bethlehem. People searching for answers, as all of us would have been. Why? Why did Herod kill my child? And why did Jesus escape? I don't think 
I would have then or now have a full answer to give them. But part of it would have been to repeat that Jesus wasn't rescued into safety, but he was rescued into being a refugee in a dangerous and a foreign country. And he didn't come from that country, Egypt, back to a palace, but he continued to live dangerously. And of course, he went to the cross for every single one of them. So although Jesus wasn't killed by Herod's soldiers then, he was killed by Pilate's soldiers 30 years later. So he was rescued, but he wasn't rescued to a life of comfort. And this challenges me, and it may challenge you, that I think for the, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, there is no time for prayers that are simply saying, God, please wrap me up in a big bubble and let me never come to any harm. It was never true of Jesus. It was never true of his disciples. So why should it be true of me? And why should it be true of you? Yes, we pray for deliverance. We pray for places like the Congo where dreadful things are happening. But as we do so, and as particularly as we think about God's leading on our own lives, we are never praying, I believe, that God will simply lead us to wonderful pleasure and safety and freedom from harm and freedom from hurt. Rather, we pray for healing and fortitude and resilience as we serve him. The last thing we see in this passage is Joseph. In Luke's gospel, it's Mary who's the focus of our attention. In Matthew, it's, it's Joseph. And we see here his quiet obedience. Maybe there was a little bit of him that was really railing against all of this. God, look what you've got me into. Look at what I'm having to suffer. Look, I'm having to run. I just wanted a quiet life, being a carpenter with my beloved back in where we used to live. But instead, he's been catapulted into this chain of events. You can imagine his resentment and his fear. And yet we just see this quiet obedience in him. He's trustworthy. He's obedient. He keeps the promises uh, that he made. And when God stops him and tells him that uh, he is ready uh, to go, uh, even though uh, so much of him may have been resistant and unwilling. So here's a challenge. Some of us need to write Matthew 2, 13 to 23 into the way that our culture and our church and our society remembers Christmas. We can't have it airbrushed out any longer. Here's another challenge uh, that we need to remember in our praying and thinking about the coming year. That our prayer is not primarily, God, take me to wonderful places. I'm sure he will do that but it's keep me faithful in hard places and lead me to places where I am most needed and where I can bring love and solace and compassion. And so in our time of reflecting and thinking and praying, let's remember the wonderful example of Joseph and let's remember that God often leads us into difficult places, as well as sustaining and leading us out the other side.